Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. This week we're taking a look at local adaptation within a hybrid species of sparrow and basal metabolic rate in zebra finches. Hybrids have often been thought to be less fit than their constituent parental species, the hard-working yet infertile mule being a classic example. But biologists are beginning to appreciate that the genetic admixture from hybridizations can have complex effects on adaptive evolution. One good example is the Italian sparrow. It was once thought to be a subspecies of the closely related house sparrow. Recently, however, it was discovered to be a species in its own right, arising through the hybridization of the house sparrow and the Spanish sparrow species. Fabrice Arukmanov from the University of Oslo and his team have been studying this relatively young hybrid species, looking specifically at the degree of phenotypic and genetic divergence across its entire range in Italy. Here's Fabrice. So genetic admixture is basically defined as kind of a reshuffling of genomes from different organisms, and it usually is related to what we call hybridization. So when you have two different species that interbreed with each other, their genomes kind of fuse to create a new organism, and this is what we call a hybrid. And this hybrid is basically has both genetic material from each parent, so each different species. So it is admixed in, in that sense. And this is exactly what happened with the Italian sparrow, right? Yes, so hybridization has happened with Italian sparrow, but it's a little bit maybe more interesting because before it was classified as a subspecies because it differed a bit uh, in terms of plumage and, and other traits. So people tended to think, okay, it's different from the house sparrow, for example. But in reality, what it was is actually the result of crossing or hybridization between the house sparrow, which is a very widespread bird, and the Spanish sparrow about 3,000 years ago. Usually when you have hybrids, people uh, tend to think that they are unfit or like not very viable. If you think of a donkey and, uh, and a horse uh, mating together, it gives uh, a mule, which is not a species in itself. It's not viable in terms of uh, reproduction. But in the Italian sparrow, what has happened is uh, what we call hybrid speciation, which is basically hybridization that is occurring and leading to a new species. How might hybridization increase evolutionary change? Classically, people tend to think that evolution occurs with a new mutation that is uh, selected and uh, that leads to some adaptation. Uh, that's what we call adaptation through the novel mutations. But there's another way also through which uh, evolutionary change can happen, which is uh, what we call adaptation from standing variation. So in populations, you can have genetic variation that is present and uh, remains present for a very long time without being used by evolution. And uh, all of a sudden, when uh, selection uh, changes or like the selective pressures change, this variation can be utilized by species and, uh, and create some novel adaptations. And hybridization is one way to kind of maintain and reshuffle this standing variation to lead to evolution. 
Right, and I guess for that to happen, there would need to be different environmental conditions. Now, you sampled across basically the whole of Italy, didn't you? Yes, we sampled uh, 25 different populations, ranging from uh, northern Italy close to the Alps to southern Italy close to Sicily. And we were really curious about these populations because, of course, it's a hybrid species, so it's supposed to be maybe slightly different from its parents. But the question we wanted to ask is, is it also quite viable? And in terms of uh, evolution, is it behaving, behaving like, its, uh, like its parents? Right. And, and to do that, you looked at the degrees of genetic and phenotypic divergence within the whole sort of species range. Yes, exactly. So we measured uh, several different traits, which are maybe quite important in, in, in birds in general and also in sparrows, namely uh, the beak and uh, the tarsus and also uh, wing length, for example. And we also looked at uh, genetic variation in, in uh, different uh, types of macrosatellites. And we found first that uh, Italian sparrow is quite viable, uh, both genetically and phenotypically. Even the degree of a mixture between the two parental genomes uh, differs across Italy. You find uh, some sort of a gradient, so that from the north, uh, northern part of Italy, you have birds that maybe look more like a house sparrows uh, to uh, the south, uh, southern part of Italy, where you have birds that look more like a Spanish sparrow. And uh, phenotypically, it's almost as viable, especially in terms of big morphology. That's, that was maybe our main finding, which is that big height and big length uh, were subject to divergent selection across uh, Italy. Uh, this was probably linked to uh, climatic factors like uh, precipitation and, and uh, to some extent the degree of agriculture, although we, we need to investigate that more. But we found that big morphology was very much uh, varying across Italy and some populations were uh, quite different from others. And did you find this um, this high level of divergence surprising, given that you've just mentioned that it's such a recent species? Yeah, it's, it is surprising to, to that extent, so that it's a quite young species and uh, it has adapted quite quickly. On the other hand, the traits we found out were the same that would the ones that would be evolving quite fast as well in, uh, in one of its parents, at least for house sparrows. There is an example in the United States where house sparrows were introduced just a couple of centuries ago and evolved quite fast in several morphological traits, including big length and big height, in response to precipitation seasonality. So we found kind of a similar selective pressures acting on both the parents and the hybrids and also evolution acting quite fast. But it is not so surprising given that it's a hybrid species and hybrids may sometimes express novelties. So you have a phenomenon that is called transgressive segregation, which is basically a phenotype that is different from both its parents in a, in a hybrid. So you can get these quick sudden changes uh, and adaptations to new environments or new habitats through hybridization. This is, however, not the case in the hybrid Italian spiral. We didn't find any of the traits that we studied that differed from both parents uh, at the same time. And you also looked at whether environmental factors were influencing all of these traits. Yes, so we looked at four different climatic variables linked to precipitation and temperature, and we found that the, the strongest effects came from uh, precipitations. And this is not so surprising. Spirals are seed eaters. So they are human commensals. They live close to farms and uh, usually uh, feed on, on seeds from uh, different types of uh, crops. 
and of course, uh, precipitation influences a lot uh, what type of uh, cereals that might be cultivated in, in, in some regions and so on. So this is not so surprising in itself. One thing that we found was surprising, however, is that uh, this variation in, in big height that is linked to, to precipitation seems to maybe also have caused some degree of isolation across these populations. So we found that populations that really differed in big height were also to some degree more isolated genetically than, than others. Right. So it's almost like not only does the ecology influence the trait, the, the trait then influences the genetic structuring. Exactly. So this is almost like a beginning of isolation by adaptation, where you have populations that are becoming locally adapted and that are reducing gene flow in between them, so, so that you might eventually later on get some kind of adaptive radiations. Uh, this is the early stages of what might people call ecological speciation, although in, in our case we, we do feel that this is very unlikely to happen for a number of reasons, and uh, and the evidence we have is also does not uh, uh, refute the possibility that population structure and the original uh, habitation event might have caused some some kind of genetic divides already uh, within Italy that may later on have facilitated this uh, ecological divergence. And what are you going to do then now to try and suss out the direction of that causality? So we are looking at uh, now different genetic markers, which we call SNPs, which are single nucleotide polymorphisms, which are apparently fixed uh, in uh, the two species, the house spirals and the Spanish spirals, and they give us a much better resolution in terms of uh, genetic structure in Italy. So that's one way to, to start approaching the problem. However, we also want to uh, really map the genetic basis of this uh, divergence in, in, in big morphology to some specific genomic regions so that we could maybe identify uh, what really happens between these populations. And finally, I mean, whether this was evidence of ecological speciation or not, this was a hybrid species, and, and rather than having lower fitness, it's a, it's a thriving population. Is this good news for the species whose ranges are shifting due to climate change, do you think, in the future? Yeah, you could think of it that way. Uh, I mean, uh, hybridization needs to be un understood better before we automatically assume that there's negative consequences. Uh, I think there's a, really a shift recently that has uh, occurred in our field regarding hybridization, and more and more people are working on, on different cases of hybrid species or uh, hybridization that might have like might stimulate evolution and adaptation so in a way you might think that it's not all so bad hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands and the best part they're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. 
no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Next up, I spoke to Kimberly Matteau at the Max Planck Institute for Ornithology in Germany. She's been studying basal metabolic rate in a captive population of zebra finches. Basal metabolic rate, or BMR, is a standardised way of measuring the energy use of a warm-blooded organism at rest, i.e. not expending any energy keeping warm or digesting food, and it's becoming a trendy area of research for evolutionary ecologists. Interestingly, this trait varies greatly between individuals of the same species, even within a population. This variation might conceivably have important consequences for how much energy is left available to other tasks, and so its adaptive significance is of growing interest. Here's Kimberly. When we're interested in the fitness of animals, one of the most important things that we're always considering is how animals manage to acquire the food that they need to power all of the things that they need to do in order to breed and to be successful. And if we look at measures of metabolic rate, which physiologists have been measuring for a long time, we see that within populations, individuals have really huge differences in the amount of energy that they require just for their basic self-maintenance. And ultimately, this must have consequences then for how much time they need to spend foraging or how much energy they have available to allocate to other resources. So it's quite fascinating that so much variation in basic energy requirements exists among individuals in the same population. What kind of variation are we talking? Is it twice as much or, you know, slight differences? Up to 300% differences between individuals. And that's even after controlling for some of the things that we know are strongly associated with differences in metabolic rates. So, for example, body size, larger individuals, because they have more metabolically active cells in their body, have a higher metabolic rate. But even if we take that into account, if we compare individuals that are exactly the same size, they can differ more than 100% or 200% in their metabolic rate. Wow. Okay, so the idea then is that you are trying to ascertain the adaptive significance of this huge variation. Well, that's one of the things that a lot of behavioral and evolutionary biologists are very interested in is understanding how can it be that such large amount of variation in something that we expect to have really important fitness consequences can be maintained. And so one of the, the starting points then for that is to, to ascertain whether or not this variation actually does have a genetic component or whether it just arises because of things like early environment or conditions that individuals experience during their development. Now, this might sound a bit naive, but presumably we already know how heritable this widely studied trait is. Typically when it's measured, it generally has a moderate heritability, so around a 30% heritability. But we also know that the estimates differ between studies in terms of um, exactly how heritable it seems to be and also in how confident we are about our estimate of the heritability. Another thing that differs is I mentioned earlier that metabolic rate is strongly correlated with overall body size. And so another thing that um, differs a lot between studies that have looked at uh, heritability of metabolic rate is the extent to which metabolic rate is correlated at a genetic level with variation in measures of body size. And that's very important because um, depending on how strongly correlated they are at a genetic level, um, that will give us insight into whether or not we can actually have selection acting on metabolic rate independently of how it will act on other traits. 
And so while these things have all been measured many times, there's a lack of consistency among studies. You also wanted to see in your study whether BMR correlated with behavioral traits as well. Right. We included one behavioral trait, which was um, male courtship rate. So how much time males spend singing towards females when they're um, presented in these paired trials of a male with an un unknown female. And the idea there was that one suggestion for how variation in metabolic rate could be maintained in populations is if individuals that have high metabolic rates so that are paying a high energy cost, if that cost is somehow offset by other benefits. For example, um, if you have a high metabolic rate, if that allows you in some way to invest in energetically costly behaviors towards gaining reproductive advantages. So we were interested in whether or not metabolic rate and courtship rate were genetically correlated in our population. Okay, well that leads us nicely on to the captive population that you chose to study. Why don't you tell me about your experimental setup? Um, so one of the collaborators on this paper, Wolfgang Forstmeier, has been working on questions relating to courtship behavior in zebra finches. And as part of his research program, he's established selection lines for courtship behavior. Um, so what he did was essentially um, measured courtship behavior in a large number of males. And then what he did was create selection lines for courtship behavior. So we have high courtship lines where males spend a higher proportion of time singing towards females and the low courtship lines where males spend less time singing towards females and the control lines which fall in between those two extremes. So let's hear about the results then. First off, was, was BMR shown to be heritable? Yeah, so we, we did find a high heritability of BMR in our population. It was close to 50%. And did you find a correlation between courtship and BMR? No, so the estimated genetic correlation between BMR and courtship rate was basically zero. So there's really no evidence of any genetic correlation between those two traits in our population. And of all the traits, heritabilities that you measured in this study, did they back up previous work on these birds? So one of the measures that we looked at was um, the genetic correlation between metabolic rate and courtship rate, which hadn't been previously measured. And in that case, we, we found no, no evidence of a genetic correlation. But we also looked at um, genetic correlations between metabolic rate, body mass, tarsus, and wing length in a way that really closely replicated a previous study in zebra finches. And uh, while our heritability estimates um, in general were, were higher for all of our traits compared to the Norwegian population, we also found really dramatic differences in the, the strength of the genetic correlations between our traits compared with that earlier study. And what do you think the significance of that is? Well, what that tells us is that um, when we have studies in single populations, it can be difficult to infer what general patterns should be across the species. So we've measured um, in the same species under similar conditions and, and obtained really quite different results from the Norwegian study. And I think that shows that in small populations, um, such as lab studies, things like drift and founder effects can cause um, changes in patterns of genetic correlations which make it um, all the more important to get replicated studies across um, species. And the fact that BMR didn't correlate with that behavioral trait of, of courtship, what does that mean about their 
evolvability as traits? This means that BMR and courtship rate are free to evolve independently of one another. So selection on one of these traits shouldn't lead to a concomitant change in the other trait, uh, which is what we also see with our data because we have um, selection lines for courtship rate and the lines that were selected for high or low courtship rate don't differ in, in the metabolic rates that we see in those lines. What's your next move in this area? Well, um, I work also on metabolic rate in another study system in Great Tits, and up until now have been relying um, heavily on some published studies suggesting that there are particular associations between metabolic rate and, and body mass. Uh, now, to move forward with asking questions about the adaptive significance of variation in metabolic rate in my population, I will be starting um, by trying to look at whether or not uh, we do observe the same kinds of patterns that we've seen in, in previously studied populations with great tits. So I think what we really need to do is um, not, not take for granted that published results are going to be universally applicable, and I think really that we need to have more replication of studies um, in order to start to understand what exactly the patterns are of um, heritability of metabolic rate. Do you think that this variation between similarly kind of held populations is, is unique to birds, or do you think this is a, a problem in all, all sorts of biological studies? I think it would be widely applicable. I think it's, it's going to be a phenomenon that's likely to be important wherever you get small populations, like when we establish populations in labs, um, where drift and founder effects can have an important role. And I think it's not only going to be applicable to lab studies, but also to wild populations. Um, if we think of things like island effects or um, fish inhabiting um, discrete ponds that have potentially just a few founders establishing each population. So I think it's really um, a general phenomenon that's going to apply to, to small populations, both in the lab and in the wild. And that's it for this month. Catch you again next month for another episode of the Heredity Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.